Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. Research Briefs was recorded in February 2020, before our lives were turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think the approach Dr. Julie Martin describes here is even more salient now. As COVID-19 disrupts, and in some cases demolishes, our normal way of doing things, it is even more important to have empathy for our students. Now, on to the podcast. This is the second of two podcasts with Dr. Julie Martin, Associate Professor of Engineering Education at The Ohio State University. In last month's podcast, we spoke to Julie about her time as a National Science Foundation Program Officer. Today, we will focus on a recent publication as a way to illustrate her research narrative. Welcome back, Julie. Thank you. I have had the pleasure of reading a draft article that I know represents your latest work. And um, I think I will tell people the title of it and let them know it's coming out in a brand new journal. So the title is Centering the Marginalized Student's Voice Through Autoethnography, Implications for Engineering Education Research. And it's by you and Siobhan Garza. And having it be co-authored, I know, will be part of our discussion, definitely. Absolutely. So this will, there will be a a citation for this on the website, so people will want to read this. It is really a fabulous article. Um, We're going to be talking a bit about how your research approach has changed, although I know your foundational goals and your, um, your passion for research and a particular topic in research have stayed constant. So maybe we could start with what you see um, a way to discuss your overall trajectory in research and maybe a little bit about how you tried to answer some research questions years ago. Sure. So I think the thing that has has been consistent throughout my career is that my career vision is about making engineering education accessible to and inclusive of all students um, and faculty and, and staff and everybody in the system. And so it was Uh, over 10 years ago now that I received an NSF career award, which was looking at um, the idea of social capital, which is the idea that um, our social relationships influence, um, uh, in this case, I was studying uh, students' academic and career decisions. And so really looking at those as um, uh, those relationships as potential assets that students bring with them to their education. And, you know, I've, I've always tried throughout my career to maintain really high quality in my research. And so I think the story that we're going to talk about today of how this <clears throat> new collaboration and new article um, came about 
is consistent with that um, idea of quality and um, how that means something different to me now than it used to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while I think a lot of people probably know about my social capital research, as I've uh, moved back into academia after being at the National Science Foundation, I've started to think about, I think there's really three big questions that I want to think about in this next phase of my career. So those questions are, how did the choices that we make when we design research studies either reproduce or or subvert uh, power relationships with our participants? And how can we make those more egalitarian? The second question is how can we disrupt or imagine, uh, reimagine or abolish the colonial practice of really speaking for communities um, in the way that we design research studies and in the way that we authentically engage participants? Um, and then the third question is about how can we use research to dismantle deficit-based thinking for marginalized students and faculty and staff in engineering, and how can we promote asset-based uh, approaches instead? So, do you think those, how does that differ from early questions you had back when you were starting your career award? If you could think back that far. Yeah, oh gosh. (laughs) Um, So, I mentioned that I feel like I've always been committed to doing high quality research and And because I've always been committed to do uh, high quality research, I I felt like I was, you know, checking all the boxes of all the different ways that people talk about research quality. And I was, I was doing those things in my research, even though I was following all the, um, the things that I knew how to do to make, to make my research be high quality I still was maintaining the status quo, I think, in having a really hierarchical relationship with my participants. So mm-hmm. as, a, as a researcher, um, you know, I was comfortable with taking stories from my participants and telling them and in feeling good about that, you know, making a, a difference in my career, in my life. I got the the line on my CV, I got the papers published. And in this new work, I'm really working to just enact a new research paradigm that begins to dismantle that researcher participant hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so in my my new paper with Siobhan, we are actually really collaborate, we collaborated to do that work and to co-author the paper so that the per the person that started out as my participant in this study then became my co-researcher and my co-author. So what I think is really fascinating about this is that the paper itself is really a wonderful way to narrate that change. So maybe you could take us back to how you first met Siobhan and what your reaction was and a bit about having her switch from participant, subject of the study, Mm -hmm. um, 
to a collaborator and co-author a little bit about that yeah. development. So I met Siobhan because I was interviewing her for a different project. And we uh, had a great interview for that other project where she actually shared a lot of her life and her story about how she came to be an engineering major. And I was so uh, not only impressed with her, but her story is absolutely um, remarkable. Mm -hmm. And my first thought after she left my office <laughs> after that interview was, oh my gosh, I have to, people need to know about this story and I have to, I have to tell them. So I need to publish this. And, um, you know, the next day I think I came into work and I started even just outlining like a narrative kind of paper about that told her narrative that told her story. And I worked on that for a few days um, I think I even had her back for a second interview. And at some point along that time, I started to feel like, oh, no, this isn't right. You know, I can't, I can't take this. This isn't mine. Mm -hmm. No, it's hers. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. And for me to publish it, to get the credit for it, to have it count towards my tenure and promotion, you know, to have that line on my CV, that didn't, that started to feel very uncomfortable to me in a way that the hundreds of interviews that I had done up to that point in my career didn't, you know, didn't, I never felt that way before. Um, and so it was one of those situations where I was in the right place at the right time. I happened to be at an engineering education event where Joe Walther was there. And he and I started to, to talk about this. I you know, shared a little bit about what I was then sort of feeling was this ethical dilemma at a time. And he uh, recommended an article that uh, he had written with um, a couple of other collaborators um, on collaborative autoethnography. And I believe that was an ASWE paper that was uh, published with uh, a student as, I believe, the first author. So I read, I read his paper and listened to his suggestion that autoethnography might be a way for me to move forward with this. And it, it really seemed like the right thing to do. So I started reading everything that I could uh, about autoethnography and tried to really get a sense of how I could go from having interviewed somebody um, and really wanting their story to be shared and me to be the one to tell it and to share it to what would, what could it look like if she were involved in that process and she were equally involved in that process. So, um, so I talked to Siobhan again, and I actually asked her if she would want to work with me. And I was really nervous about that, <laughs> about that question because I, I was kind of afraid she was going to say she didn't, right? And then what, what was I, what was I going to do? Um, well, it turns out that she uh, writes creatively in, um, in her life, in her spare time, and she was super excited about it. So we started to work together and we met, you know, every week for a long time. Um, 
And she began, I, I started by just beginning to ask her to write her story. She wrote about 40 pages, 40 single space pages. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's when I realized like, oh my goodness, the problem here in this particular situation was not going to be, would she want to collaborate with me? The problem was going to be having to take pieces of her story out and not tell some pieces. Um, so, you know, working with, with her on the project and figuring out what it was that we were going to publish and what wasn't going to go in that paper and acknowledging that there are lots of things that happened in her life that influenced um, her path that just couldn't, we just couldn't do it all in one paper. Um, and working with her and learning about her life really taught me a lot about my positionality, about my privilege. And I think the more I worked with her, the more I grappled with that privilege. Um, and this article took, I think it's been four years, almost to the month. Um, and this is another thing that I've really grappled with um, in, in terms of not necessarily where I am in my career right now, but where other people might be in their careers and how we may be able to or not spend that longer, much longer time, that extra time to actually sort of dismantle that hierarchy and to work side by side with our participants and to co-author and to, you know, collaborate on a, on a final product. So it took me a lot longer than it would have to get this published. Um, had I just gone with sort of my first instinct of writing it up as a, as a student's narrative. Um, and I think the way that I have grown and changed as a researcher because of this is just that change process is what has helped me define what I want this next phase of my career as a researcher mm -hmm. to be like in those three mm -hmm. questions that we talked about when we started. So a few things that to kind of pique the interest of uh, the listeners to read your article is that um, your final decision, I guess, was to represent five scenes Mm -hmm. in her life that were illustrative. And I'm sure thinking about a life as rich as hers or any of us mm -hmm. to think about what few things, three, four, five, six things are we going to use to illustrate must be um, a really, really difficult choice. And that this was a choice that you made together with her. Um, yes. And so I'm thinking that the process of reflecting on it and seeing what does this really tell us and how will this move the story forward would, uh, would be very challenging and delightful, but also really exhausting. It was. And you know, that I was thinking as you were, were talking just now that I shared drafts of this with multiple people along the way, you know, 
uh, a few months into it, every up until just a few, probably the last time I was doing revisions on the paper. And the feedback that we kept getting at first was, this is more than one paper. You're doing too much here, you know. And there's, there, so there are lots of different aspects of her life that we were not able to represent in one paper. And, if, and so we really had to figure out, I think like anybody who's writing a paper has to figure out like, what's the message that we want to convey with this paper? Um, what's, you know, another message might be for another paper and then choosing the pieces so that she felt that they were, um, that, that they encompassed her life and that we were representative of her life, but also knowing that they were, there were things that lots of things that we left out. Mm-hmm. And as I recall from the paper as well, that um, some of her story involves her family, particularly her mother, and she needed to be sure that her mother was informed of what was being said and had given her, you know, approval or okay. And so that's another thing that, oh, if I'm going to mention this person, it's really not fair not to bring them into the picture as well and check this with them. Right. So um, there are some really, um, you know, intimate and um, personal things about her mother that are shared mm-hmm. in the, in the paper. And that was part of our the ethical validation, you know, piece of our paper and uh-huh. was to um, once we decided that those, that those things were absolutely essential to this, the story, then to make sure that her mother was okay with us sharing mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. And one very powerful thing, too, about her stories <laughs> and her talking about the different challenges that she uh, encountered, particularly when she wanted to go to college or got into college, <laughs> It, it really is a very powerful reminder that, yes, this image we have of the middle-class 18-year-old student is not always the case. And people were giving her advice like, oh, well, just go home and live, you know, live with your parents. Well, no, I, I can't do that. I have nowhere to live. Well, but you're not homeless, so, you know... We can give you food, and it's like, no, that's not what I need. You know, um, it was just like, wow, yes, we make those kinds of assumptions all the time. Well, of course, if something happened to me, I could go home with my parents and live with my parents. Aren't that what you're going to do? Isn't that the idea for you? Um, And so I, I think with her story really helps us see that assumption we make. Yeah, that, you know that was a that was a, one of our goals in in sharing this story was that I really thought we all needed a very concrete example of how the assumptions that many of us make about the students that we have in our classes or in our programs and are doing research with us, all the ways that we interact with students um, are those are not necessarily the case. And if we want to really push the field and really push our institutions to be inclusive of all students, we need to stop making those assumptions. Yes. And so by telling this story, I think this is an example of, you know, where the 
in qualitative research, it becomes transferable to other contexts. Um, my hope is that folks will, who are educators can read this, and even though they know it's not Siobhan in their classes or, you know, uh, at their institutions, that there are other people who have different kinds of life circumstances um, than we are as institutions or educational system as a whole um, anticipating that they would have. Yeah, yeah. Before we started, I shared with you a, a story of a, of a story about a student who <clears throat> has uh, applied to our program who had some parts of her story were, were similar to Siobhan's. And I was thinking about what we assumed by just looking at her three paragraphs of her statement of purpose mm -hmm. and thinking about how much of her story might be similar to Siobhan's and this whole wealth of things we weren't perhaps taking into consideration. It's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, one of the ways that this project has inspired me to sort of get out of my comfort zone is that um, I've been working with Sean Jordan and um, Shannon Steffel, who's uh, graduating from Clemson soon, and Chrissy Foster um, from Arizona State on some, uh, some improv, um, improv performances and uh, at different conferences around this story. And one of the things that we have been attempting to do there is to act out part of the story that comes from the Studies in Engineering Education paper and then ask the audience to improv with us some scenarios that may be similar to what they would encounter in their um, own roles in, at their institutions. And so an admissions committee was one of the things that we've had uh, folks improv around, assuming that they get an application uh, either for undergrad or graduate studies um, for somebody um, with Chauvin's background and thinking about ways that we can think about her experiences as assets that she brings to her education. Right, right. Rather than deficits. Yes. Because what was it? Uh, resistance capital? Is that one of the things that you were talking about of just saying, here's a person who had so many things thrown at them and just absolutely refused to stop because of those things. How incredible that is. Um, and yes, thinking about that as an asset. Yes, very, very important. So there was a term that I hadn't seen before that I'm just really, really attracted to that I think goes back to your three research questions that you talked about at the, at the beginning of the podcast today. And the term is methodological activism. Can you say a bit about that and then maybe even restate your three big questions with that in mind? Because um, sure. I think that's just a really inspiring way to look at this. 
So I got that term from Mia Ong, who is a fabulous researcher. Um, and the idea with methodological activism, which, by the way, is my new tagline for my research group, is, um, you know, how do we use methods and methodologies in very intentional ways to make um, a political statement, to make a point, to, and to make change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how could we design studies that are more egalitarian in the ways that the researchers and the participants interact? That's, that was essentially my first question. You know, how can we, um, to use a phrase that's in the um, paper, how can we join with our participants instead of trying to know and save them mm -hmm. and, and to speak for them, which was my first instinct after hearing Siobhan's story, because that was the only thing that I had known. That was the only thing that I had seen really in, in research. That's pretty much the status quo. And then also, you know, how can we ask, how can we ask questions that are asset based or anti-deficit based um, and use theoretical frameworks and methods that help to eliminate this deficit-based thinking mm -hmm. for folks who have been historically marginalized in engineering. And I think with regards to uh, deficit-based thinking, again, Siobhan has a Siobhan. There's an E there, so I keep wanting to call her Siobhan, but it's Siobhan, that she is talking about that feeling of almost internalizing those deficits and feeling she needs to be fixed. Yes. And how fabulous it was to realize, oh, there's a system here that is racist. I don't need to be fixed. I'm fine. Yeah. Um, and how powerful that was for her. And... To me, that that made it worth it right there. Yeah, yes. That made it. Yes. So um, you mentioned some challenges about just how long this takes. And I think there's some things that are related to that that we might want to discuss, which have to do with the pace at which we're expected to produce publications and the places that we publish and some of the, the ways that those systems are not set up for this kind of work. Yes, and I specifically mentioned that in the, in the article as well. So, you know, this had a really lengthy incubation period. Um, it also feels to me like this kind of work is really hampered by a few things, like some that you mentioned, so page limits in journals. You know, if we're really going to collaborate with participants and do really rich, in-depth, qualitative studies, then journal page limits are a potential... Um, place that can sort of threaten that. Thinking about trying to get funding to do this kind of work 
you know, just coming from NSF, most of the projects that I funded at NSF were three-year projects. And so it seems to me that we may, if we really want to promote this kind of work and encourage folks to do it, that we may need to rethink some of that. And then the other thing that's, you know, obvious to a lot of us is how the reward system works and particularly the tenure process, which is on the clock. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that all of those things at this point are challenges to doing mm -hmm. this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as you say, questioning a paradigm is hard work and really amazing rewards for it once you beat your way through all of those barriers. Absolutely. So I myself, Julie, have, I'm going to ask this kind of selfishly, um, I myself also have gone through some epiphanies where I realize a kind of research that I've done for a while just no longer really aligns with my current thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And I know there is a period of feeling very much at sea and kind of confused and rootless um, and wondering, well, what should I do instead? And I would like to get a sense of how you coped with that feeling and what were some of the things that you did to help give yourself uh, grounding again. I think that's a really good way to way to des describe it. Um, realizing that what I've been doing isn't going to work for me in the future because I've come to see things differently. So I love to learn, and it helped um, that I could go into this being really open and, and curious and wanting to learn about something new, you know, methodologically, theoretically, in terms of um, how I would design a study <clears throat> to be inclusive of the participant. And I think the big thing was that I had to be really humble. You know, I talked about uh, really having to re-examine my positionality and my privilege in a way that I never had before, even though I felt like I had done that you know, multiple times in my life. So I was really nervous about it and am still nervous about it. You know, it's still discomforting. And I think that being open to what's going to come next is the part that makes me feel like I'll be successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were willing to talk with people about it and get input from folks and right. happened to yep. be fortunate to run into Joe, who was a good person to talk about it with. Yeah, so I think being really transparent was helpful. And that was one of the things that I was trying to do in my part of the paper um, you know, from my perspective in, in writing the paper is to help demonstrate what it might be like to be transparent about 
the decisions, about the processes, about the change that I went through as a researcher in the hopes that, you know, other people might realize that it would be okay to do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Again, I, I want to urge people to read the paper. We'll, we'll have a citation for sure on the website. Um, and you probably will on your webpage too as soon as it comes out? Or Yes. 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 Um, and it is really a wonderful read, not only for the story it tells, but really helping us rethink the whole paradigm of research. Um, and being sure that we are not blindly following cultural norms that we really don't agree with deep in our heart, but we're just doing the things because that's the way it's done. Um, And I I really thank you for that. I know that's a long journey, um, but I think you're really, really contributing to the field. And um, I would bet there's going to be a third episode with you <laughs> looking at where this goes in the future. Um, that sounds great to me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, thank you for doing wonderful work, Julie. Thanks. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music, A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.